This week in our Epiphany series, we see Jesus is, is drawing large crowds. People are coming from all over to hear his teaching. Today, Jesus gives some special instructions to his disciples. Jesus, is, or Jesus delivers the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. A similar list appears in the book of Matthew, but we're going to be looking at the list in Luke. Now, the Beatitudes can be misunderstood. When improperly interpreted, they can carry like a false expectation. But they aren't meant to be a weight around our neck. This morning, as we read and study the Word of God, I pray that we would all be encouraged by the words of Jesus in this text. That we would gain gain greater understanding of His mission and we would see how he has revealed himself to his followers. First to the disciples in real time, and, and then to his disciples many thousands of years later. Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. We read the word of the Lord. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. When I was growing up, I, I knew of a honeydew as a round fruit, like a, like a cantaloupe, but green. It was, I, I wasn't necessarily a big fan of this particular melon. I, I didn't really like them, but... At least one of my parents was. I'm assuming it was my dad. I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was my dad that just loved the honeydew. Because I remember it being at like every picnic we ever did. There was the honeydew and there was the cantaloupe. You had your green and you had your orange. And, and that was like the fruit that, that we got to eat. And I just remember dad getting out like the big knife and just setting the honeydew up and just thump, right? And you get the nice little uh, banana type like shaped fruit. And just, oh, just nailing it. Face all juicy. It was whatever, man. I wasn't the biggest fan, but... I remember eating them quite a bit. That, that's what I thought of when I thought of honeydew when I was a kid. And then as I got older, I was presented with a new meaning for honeydew. You know, it's a list of things that your honey, your babe, your husband, your significant other 
that you give them to do. I would hear my friends talking about their honeydew lists. You know, this week we're finishing up the reno in the bathroom so I can finally cross that off the honeydew list. Or I'm fixing the broken chair in the kitchen, replacing lights in the, in the kids' bedrooms. And, you know, I'm going to take a look at the leak under the toilet downstairs. A list that tells the one you love what you would like them to do. Honeydew. Now, honeydew lists, like they, they have their charm. They communicate a need, a desire. They tell us how to help out, right? They, they give us a tangible way to assist someone that we love. They give us a tangible way to bless someone that we love by doing what they desire of us, by doing what they would like us to do. The issue with a honeydew list is when it moves from a means of blessing into an expectation of blessing. When it goes from, this is a way you could really help me out, to, if you don't do this, then you just don't care about me. When the honeydew list becomes the barometer for, for how much one person in a relationship loves the other person in a relationship, the weight of that expectation can be debilitating. The margin for error all but, but disappears. There's no room for mistakes. You must complete the list or your significant other could get the wrong idea. The maintenance of your relationship falls on a set of actions, a set of tasks. It's moved past an action of love and has become a weight, a burden, a law that you must uphold. This morning, our text gives us a list. It tells us that the poor are blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It tells us that those who are hungry are blessed, for they shall be satisfied. It tells us that those who weep are blessed, for they will laugh. It tells us that if we are attacked for professing the name of Christ, then we will be blessed. And then we receive a number of woes, of warnings. We read, woe to you who are rich, for you'll get what's coming to you. And woe to you that are full, for you will be hungry. And woe, and, and, and you who are laughing, woe to you, for you shall mourn and weep. And a final woe to you if, if people speak well of you. For liars and deceivers are also spoken well of. What do we do with this list? What do we do with this? Like, how do we, how do we approach it? That's been, that's been my struggle this week. What is a faithful rendering of this list? What is Jesus telling us about ourselves? And and more importantly, how is he revealing himself to us in this list? The Beatitudes have sometimes been understood as a spiritual checklist. A spiritual checklist. And that is pretty dangerous. For when we see it as a spiritual checklist, it becomes a way that we can participate in, have some ownership over our salvation. We can think, if I do these things or, or feel this way or have this stuff happen to me, then God has promised that this stuff will also happen to me. Understanding this list as a checklist, a means of securing God's favor, would encourage us to completely overlook good financial planning. 
Why would I ever want to be a good steward of my money? Because as long as I'm poor, then I know that mine is the kingdom of God. And if you're rich, well, look at what it says about the rich. You've already gotten your measure of goodness. You don't get any more later. You're the kid that ate all the Halloween candy on the first night. And then, uh, you know, those of us who are poor, well, you know, we're, we'll be the ones eating it into eternity. So, so there. Understanding this list as a checklist would encourage us to be hungry. Because if we're hungry now, well, we won't be in eternity. It would encourage us that if we put ourselves in situations that hurt us, that cause us pain, that bring tears to our eyes, so that someday in heaven we might be laughing. And if we're laughing now, well, it's going to be a long, somber time apart from God. Even more dangerously, seeing this list as a checklist encourages us to cause people to exclude, revile, and spurn our name as evil because of how we proclaim Christ. It would encourage us to rejoice in rejection, for that would mean our reward is great in heaven. It would encourage us to be the Westboro Baptists, intentionally alienating the world around us, not through loving our neighbor, but through condemning them. And then believing that the rejection we experience from our society around us proves that God will reward us handsomely in heaven someday. That's disgusting. I, it took me a long time to find a picture that I felt okay with posting in, 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 in the slides. Like it was it's painful to see what we write on posters and, and, and how elements that, that claim to be Christian have, have tried to proclaim, I guess, faith. Is that what this list is intended to do? Is that what this list is intended to do? A honeydew list was never meant to be a measuring stick by which we understand the commitment level we have to a relationship or the way that we feel about our significant other. The terms aren't discussed on the first date, right? They don't make their way into our wedding vows. And the intent of this list is not to be proof of our feelings and, or in the intent of the list, the honeydew list, is not to be proof of our feelings and therefore a possible weight between our shoulders. The intent of the list is to be a way to encourage and bless and help someone that we love. And the Beatitudes are similar in this way. The Beatitudes are an encouragement, not a checklist. They're an encouragement. God isn't saying, make yourself poor so that I may bless you. He's not blessing poverty itself or any particular social class. He's talking about reliance. The rich are often self-reliant. They don't need help. They have the ability to, to help themselves. Jesus is talking about relying in him, trusting not in ourselves, but in Christ. He's saying, blessed are those who rely on me and not on themselves. He's saying, when you're relying on me, when you have faith in me, because you know you can't do it on your own, yours is the kingdom of God. 
And one of the things that is so awesome about this is that it's not a, it's not a future tense, right? It's not a down payment on something we get to realize later. It's a present tense. In relying on him, you are part of the kingdom now, the current kingdom, and then also the kingdom future, the kingdom to come. The Beatitudes are an encouragement, not a checklist. And as much as we want to, you know, may want to make this a spiritual to-do list because we love to try to find ways to participate in our salvation, this is actually a spiritual done list. For Christ has perfectly done all of these items. There's a check next to each box. We can rely on Christ because of his work on the cross. He has done it. He has taken our sin and our shame and he bore them to the hill on Calvary where he nailed them or where he was nailed with them there to that tree. And then he died. He died and he conquered sin and death by rising from the grave and establishing himself as the savior of man. For when we have faith in him, when we rely on him, the Bible tells us that we have like put him on. That his perfect life covers our sinful life. His clean robes cover our sinful rags. And because of him, because of faith in him, because of reliance on him, we can have a relationship with the living God. Christ has done the work and we can rely on him. But he also lived life as a man. Hebrews 4 verses 15 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Everything that we are going through, he has gone through. There is not a temptation that you have faced that Jesus did not face. But he was able to resist each of those temptations perfectly and remain sinless and pure. But it's not just the temptation that Jesus experienced. He experienced our hunger as well. So when we read, blessed are those who hunger for you shall be satisfied, we can be confident that it is Jesus who is doing the satisfying. This isn't a call to go hungry, but again, a call to rely on the one who has already walked the path before us and with us. In the Old Testament, those who are hungry are encouraged by the promise of God, not in the present, but in the future. They will be made full by the goodness of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is where their comfort is found. In a promise not yet realized. And that is where we can be encouraged as well. Our hunger will be sated forever when Christ comes again. And we read about those who weep. We can be secure in knowing that Jesus is weeping right alongside us. When his best friend died, Jesus wept. He wept for the life of Lazarus along with those who loved Lazarus, even though he knew he would be raising Lazarus from the dead very shortly. Jesus knows our pain. He has felt our deep loss and he weeps with us. We are not alone in our grief. We're not alone in our grief. 
And today we have the encouragement that our grief here on earth is not the end. It's not the end. For in heaven all will be made new. And we will have joy. We will no longer know the pain of grief and sadness, but will instead have joy and laughter. Our tears will be forgotten. All this is possible because of Jesus Christ. We have comfort and promise through faith in him. And then we come to rejection. This is not a call to seek rejection from our neighbor. We are not called to be offensive and rude. We are not called to beat our neighbor down with the law. We are not, allowed, not instructed to tell anyone how much better our faith makes us than their lack of faith makes them. I mean, that isn't even true. God loves me and you just as much as he loves our atheist friends and our Muslim neighbors. Our faith doesn't make us more precious to God. He loves all people and desires all people to believe in him, for all people are made in his image and are precious to him. We are not called to be disrespectful to those who do not share our faith. Quite the contrary. As all over scripture, we see the call to love our neighbor. Now, the gospel is inherently offensive as it proclaims our inability to earn favor with God on our own merits, our own worth. And that's, I mean, yeah, that, that can be a little offensive. It's also offensive in that it excludes any other path to heaven but through faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us that it is only through faith in Jesus that any of us will have a happily ever after. And that's offensive. Because it's exclusive. And we can't change these things about the gospel without losing the promise of the gospel. We weaken the cross through compromise. So there can be no compromise in these areas. And because of this offense, there will be backlash. Because the Bible is true, and what the Bible says is true, because the Bi- and because the Bible doesn't condone, and in fact condemns, speaks against us being able to live however we want to live and do whatever pleases our sinful natures. Well, people don't want to hear that. At the time, we don't want to hear that. I guess I'm angry. And we will face backlash for that. And Christ says, I did too. I did too. He not only faced backlash for it, he was killed for it. Some of us may be killed for it or have someone we know killed for it someday. But we have comfort and encouragement in those situations. For though life here is hard and we may feel rejected and belittled for our faith, we have the promise of verse 23 in our passage this morning. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. We know that this is not the end for us. We are exiles in a foreign land. We do not belong here. And we can take comfort in the one who has made a way for us to go where we do belong. We can take comfort in Christ, who through his death and resurrection has reconciled us to God. And through faith in Jesus, we can be firm in our hope of a future, jumping and leaping 
with him in heaven forever. The Beatitudes are not a checklist that we are asked to perform. The Beatitudes are an encouragement we have from Christ. They are a promise that we have from God, a promise of comfort, a promise of hope, a promise that we can rely on, that we can count on, that we can be secure in. Thanks be to God, our Father in heaven. Amen.